Hi, friends. This episode of the Paw and Order podcast is brought to you by Cassava. Cassava creates frozen, naturally gluten-free foods with simple, wholesome, minimally processed ingredients and has its own line of 100% vegan, easy-to-prepare dishes. This episode is also brought to you by Tempe. Tempe crafts unpasteurized tempeh using organic, non-GMO soybeans and is created fresh for the boldest taste and texture. You can find Tempe's well-loved tempeh across various retailers in the greater Vancouver area. And finally, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at The Grin and Goat. The Grin and Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across the country and worldwide, particularly during the COVID crisis. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca by simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, joined by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hello, Peter. Hey, Camille. I'm here in body. I don't know about spirit. Body is here, ready to go. What happened to your spirit? Is it, is it, is it down? Is it low? Um, it's both low and high. Great things are happening, but uh, it is weird. I, I think you saw on Twitter, I wrote that if one more person tells me they're bored because they have nothing to do in COVID, I'm going to take a stack of 100 applications, defy all COVID re- restrictions, travel to where they are and like beat them over the head with the applications. So like, wow. I am I have never worked harder in my entire life. Like how crazy is that? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not sure how anybody could be bored in lockdown, given this thing that we all have called the internet. But second, I think you should probably fill your fill listeners in a little bit more on your 100 entrance project and how that's been progressing since the last time we chatted. So since the last time we chatted, which feels like another lifetime ago to me because I can't even remember it. Um, I know, have, and somehow this is our third episode in quarantine. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, it just exploded. So uh, it's become sort of a passion project that it just, it really just exploded. I don't remember where we were two weeks ago, so I can't compare to that. Um, and by the way, I, I want to add something. I'm going to talk about this, but my brain is very mushy and I don't want to forget. I received some really lovely donations from people who are just pawn order listeners, more or less. And that was very, very sweet and really appreciated because this project has become a big part of what I'm doing. And it was just like um, somebody I wanted to shout out, Camille, and I'm now forgetting her name because I'm brain dead, but she's going to listen to this. It was um, a woman we met up in the Northwest Territories who's not a lawyer, um, but she's doing law adjacent type of projects. And she came to our speech in uh, North Territories and she gave me like a fantastic donation for interns so that's Aww. really great. 
Yeah. Well, so well, thanks to our Paw and Order tribe. Exactly. So um, what I want to say is, uh, yeah, so the 100 Interns Project went from, I don't remember if I called it the 100 Interns Project last time. I don't think so. It was like, I'm going to hire some interns. And suddenly, I'm running an internship program for 100 interns. And I've just invented it like in my basement. And it's incredibly rewarding and incredibly time consuming. And as of this moment, I think we've placed 41 interns and we've raised funding for about 60. Um, we're trying to go to 100. So I'm not done with this yet. And it has been exhausting and exhilarating. Like, you know, you know what it's like, Camille, because you've done it a couple of times, right? So you know what it's like that there is, we're, we're about to contrast the best feeling in the world and the worst feeling in the world. So let's start with the best. I really love the best thing in the world is calling someone to give them a job. Yeah. Yeah. That really is a good feeling. People are pretty happy. Yeah. And like conversely, the worst thing is telling, calling somebody, I usually send an email to tell them they didn't get the job. No, I'm just kidding. If it's a personal thing, I call them, but for the internship program, it's too many. I can't call them all. Um, but, um, so just think that in the last week or two, I've called, 41 students who are literally many of them in a state of despair because their opportunities for the summer were stripped away and they really didn't know what they were going to do and they were worried about their overall career and they had no chances for experience and I've gotten to call 41 of them and tell them I have a job for you and that has been extremely rewarding. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, I'm I'm happy you're doing it and uh, we're also benefiting it from this endeavor at Animal Justice because a wonderful student who joined us a couple of summers ago, uh, Crystal Russell, is coming back for the internship. She's just finishing law school at University of Ottawa. And Crystal, I know, listens to the podcast. So hey, Crystal, so excited to have you back again. Um, I think it's a great thing that you're doing. And I, I, I know that feeling, the, the draining feeling, but the exhilaration at the same time. The best feeling and the worst feelings in the world are often so like closely connected, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt. So it's been, it's been, you know, there, there's a reason, you know, people quote Charles Dickens so often with it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, because that's really what it is. Um, it is, I have never felt in my life, honestly, Camille, and which is weird, because I've been a longtime board of directors, members of animal justice, and I've advocated for animals. And I've, you know, gone to the courts for animals and all that. But still, this is a much deeper thing. This is a project that I have invented and carried forth from day one. And I have never felt more connected to a project. So it's like I am, I, I know that something meaningful is happening here. It's not just um, something that I'm doing on the side or, you know, giving a little money to make other people happy. I'm literally carrying the project on my back. Sorry, I should say the co, you know, the co-hero of this project, to the extent that there's a hero, um, is my wife, who's essentially taken over all child duties, and they're both at home, and I can't do them because I'm working on this literally 16 to 17, 18 hours a day. So uh, yeah, so it's great, but at the same time, it's 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 if you don't hear me on the next episode, Camille, it's because I've succumbed to, to some stress-related, <laughs> you know, uh, tragedy because it's really crazy. It's really hard to keep uh, a balanced life when you're just trying to run a project that's way too big for me. Well, I know the feeling. And if I could offer you some words of advice, slow down because I don't want to have to find a new co-host. 
I think you'd reach back from your grave with jealousy if you uh, end up having to leave for stress-related reasons. So, well, you know, try, like- try to keep it in check, Peter. I like how you're putting me in a grave already, Camille. I was just I was just talking about a hospitalization or something. And like Camille's already like planning. She's already got her list of new co-hosts ready to go. Thanks, Camille. You always gotta have a backup plan and exit strategy, Peter. <laughs> well, that's good. Camille, you know, let's get we talked I, I know I know we talked about um about about my project, but I mean I wanna focus Camille on what's important. Really, like, let's get to what's important. It was Camille's birthday, and we already explored the tragedy of the April 7th birthday, so I'm not going to revisit that. That was the topic of our last episode. So, Camille, how was your birthday? You know, Peter, it was actually one of my best birthdays ever, quite unexpectedly. I, you know, didn't expect it to be amazing and didn't expect it to be terrible, but I think because we're in this lockdown, everyone is trying to be extra, extra nice to people with birthdays. I know I'm doing the same thing, but I got so many phone calls, so many texts, messages, social media tags, things like that, um, wishing me happy birthday, which is really lovely. And my dear friend Cheryl and Keish delivered a vegan chocolate hazelnut cake from Bloomer's Bakery in Toronto. Uh, that's an amazing vegan bakery and their cake. I, f- I first had it at the friend's birthday party back in the fall and I've just been obsessed with it since then. It's like the best cake ever. Um, so that was awesome. And uh, yeah, I just had a really nice sort of special relaxing day and it's hard to it's hard to ask for much more. But but thanks to everyone who, who did help make that birthday not uh, a crappy one. It was very much appreciated. So Camille, I wanted to say, and you know, I am not one to really do this sort of thing publicly, but I I wanted to to say that <clears throat> um, I wanted to say that I don't like to share people what I got for their birthday. You know what I mean? But because of this tragedy, Camille, I I had to tell you about your birthday present, and it just so happens for this year's birthday, Camille, I had bought you a first-class ticket around the world to stop at some of the world's best hotels. I wanted you to luxuriate, but unfortunately, Camille, it was time-limited. It had to be exercised (laughs) during the month of April, and unfortunately, Camille, it's all off. So I wanted you to know I was thinking about you. Happy birthday. Well, thanks. Thanks for that birthday uh, present. I'll, I'll call it in next year or the year after, or whenever the heck we're out of this mess, because uh, I could really use a little gallivanting. No, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's gone, Camille. It was a one-time offer. It's over. Yeah, I, I'm not going to accept that. I think, I think once, you, once you sort of put it out there as a gift idea, you kind of have to follow through on that, Peter. So this might not be the end of that. Oh, well, Anyway, see. so the birthday was good. Yeah, no, otherwise, things have been good. I've just been working away on uh, bigger projects at Animal Justice, some of those things that we just never get to because the day-to-day is so busy. And now that the courts and legislatures are, are shut down, there, there's not a lot going on uh, on that front. Um, but there's still a little bit of media attention being p- paid to the animal issues, and we're going to talk about some of that in the news section. But I did have a nice chat with uh, host Charles Adler on CKNW Radio the other week. And um, Charles is is a great guy. Uh, I really respect him and his work. He's been on the air for decades. And he covers issues that uh, not all journalists do. And and the thing that we spoke about was the connections between our treatment of animals and the natural world 
and the current COVID pandemic. So Peter, we had a chance to talk about uh, the, the role of factory farming in this pandemic and other pandemics, the role of wildlife markets, and the potential for a shift toward a plant-based diet or toward cultivated meat that's not uh, not raised or grown using slaughter methods. So that was pretty cool, and I got a lot of good feedback on it. So it was it was nice to be talking about this stuff a little bit in the media since the attention on these issues has died down somewhat. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. No, good work. It's, uh, it's good to uh, get that uh, stuff out there. You know, speaking of media attention, Camille is very well aware of the uh, power of the media. And um, it's been really interesting for me to watch when we started doing this hundreds interns project, Camille. Um, I finally got contacted by the CBC. They followed me on the Twitter and the CBC did really, uh, you know, I rarely do this because like more often when I get quoted in the media, it's just some kind of butcher piece where like half of what I've said is not reproduced correctly. But like this was really well put together. I thought the uh, reporter did a tremendous job of sort of culling the most important parts of what it was and cutting out all the extraneous stuff. And I thought she did a great job. And that story has been really important to spreading this 100 interns project. I mean, it went from like five interns two weeks ago to now we're closing in on 60. Like it's just it's incredible. And uh, that's the power of the media. But I'm sure you know about that. Yeah, totally. I mean, what, half my theory of animal law is that what we can get um, into the media and, and use to shift people's attitudes about animals is it's almost as important as the victories that we win in court or in legislatures. So I hear you on that one. And congrats on the coverage. It has been good. All right. Well, we have a really, really busy show, but we would be remiss today if we did not remind you to leave us a review. I mean, what are you doing right now, unless you're reading applications for an internship project, that you can't give us a review? Like, isn't it the perfect time for reviews? It is. You guys get on there. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if, if you think we're worth five stars. Uh, but we have over 100 five stars reviews right now. And we would appreciate if you'd add yours to the um, to the stack. Yeah, and we, we need more reviews. We always need more reviews. It helps other people find the podcast. And when is a better time than now for them to listen to it? And a reminder as well that if you like what we're doing and you find this content useful in terms of your knowledge of animal law or just you find this entertaining, that you can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows you to provide a monthly amount to a product like a podcast that you really enjoy and, and support. And we've got various levels of rewards for different uh, people who are our patrons. So patrons. So you can visit patreon.com slash paw and order. And Peter, today we've got a special perk for our patrons. A perk, Camille? Is it another perk? What could it be? It is a perk. It is a perk. So this is thanks to our sponsor, Kesava, which makes delicious gluten-free dumplings and pierogies. I've had a couple of their different varieties now. They were kind enough to send us some, and I've purchased more just on my own because they're so delicious. And they're really great. I've got friends who've got um, kids who've got celiac and been recommending it to them, and they're really enjoying them. So Cassava is kindly partnering with us and offering to give a free package of one of their products or a coupon for such uh, to somebody who supports us on Patreon. So Peter, I think you're going to give me a number, and I've got all our patrons, patrons here on the list. And uh, I think if you can you know, just do this random number generation thing, we'll pick a patron and send that person the coupon. 
Okay, we're going to do that. And then I get to talk about cassava. You just took all the cassava comments. And like the big news is that unlike last time when we did this, I've tried cassava, Camille. That's important. Oh. Okay, let's okay. do the draw well, first. Well, say what you want to say. No, right, no, we'll draw, draw first. And then I'll rave about how lucky this person is. Um, the number randomly generated on my computer is number seven. Number seven. So that's Callum McDonald and someone else who I whose name I can't see because the spreadsheet cuts off. But Callum and somebody else who donates with Callum are the lucky winners. We'll call it Callum and product. Friend. Callum and Friend. Congratulations. And friend. Now, let me say... <laughs> Thank you guys for being supporters. Yes, absolutely. We love our supporters and... I have become a very big fan of cassava. Um, I'm not kidding. Like, we hadn't tried them before. And I know we, you know, these are our advertisers. But I'm beholden to no company, Camille. You know that about me. I am beholden. If the product is not good, I will say, thank you for sponsoring us. But we don't like you. Your product's no good. (laughs) I don't know if I would do it quite (laughs) like that. Um, Cassava is awesome. We had our first cassava sweet potato pierogies, and uh, we got them. My my wife finally found a place in Edmonton that had them because the main supplier here, as I mentioned weeks ago, went out of business. So we have them, and I brought them home, and we cooked up some cassava pierogi slash dumplings, sweet potato ones, and like some sauce and cheese. My kids were like over the moon, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken. We put together a little video recording of my kids talking about cassava. We're here having lunch in the Sankoff household. We're having some cassava. How do you like the cassava ravioli? We're having sweet potato ravioli. How do you like it, Penny? It's delicious. (laughs) You said before, pass the ravioli. What about you, Oscar? Do you like ravioli? It's like my favorite. Oh, what do you like about it? Like, (laughs) the filling is like so good. The filling is delicious. What do you think, Manny? I like the outsides and how well it mixes with tomato and cheese. Mmm. So we got two big thumbs up, three big thumbs up, four big thumbs up for cassava potato ravioli. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, well, congrats, Callum and friend. Thanks you, thank you guys for your support, and uh, check out cassava. All right, yep. Peter, let's move on to the news. There's lots to talk about, but we're going to focus on just a couple articles today. The first is a New York Times column by a philosopher named David Benatar. He uh, directs the Bioethics Center at the University of Cape Town, and he's written a piece that is noteworthy because of where it appears, which is a very high readership publication. It's called Our Cruel Treatment of Animals Led to the Coronavirus. Now, this isn't really a novel um issue, if you've been listening to this podcast, or if you already care about animals, you've been thinking about this, but he does lay out in in quite some detail how our treatment of animals has caused this pandemic, and not just this one, but other zoonoses, so diseases that jump from animals to humans, like HIV, uh, BSE, which is also known as mad cow disease, and he talks about another issue that I think is really important and just gets discussed less. Uh, It gets discussed less now, but I predict in the future it will get more airtime, but this idea of antibiotic resistance and the possibility that we may actually return to a future pre-antibiotics era in which antibiotics just have no effect or impact on our health anymore. They just don't do what they're designed to do, which is kill bacteria that make us sick. And the reason that farming could cause this is because most antibiotic use is used on animals and farms, and this overuse breeds superbugs, which are just resistant. So I enjoyed this piece, Peter. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, this is a big story. We've, I'm sure in our two years plus, we've talked about antibiotic resistance because I think this is the lurking pandemic that's waiting to happen. Um, and it's, it's not so much because of the spread. So to be clear, I mean, it may well emerge from wet markets in China, who knows. But the problem is just that we are running out of antibiotics to actually effectively um, treat a lot of types uh, of these illnesses. And I should say, to be clear, um, the, the, the use of antibiotics in animals is not the only culprit, and I don't think the article says that. Um, there's no question that human overuse of antibiotic for non-antibiotic use, which is ridiculous, is a problem too. But there's no question that the use of it in animals is just a huge, huge problem. And it's really, it's, it's, it's one of those things, I'm sure this bothers you, Camille, too. It's one of those things like, there are times when people treat animals badly and bad things happen to them. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, I don't like it, but uh, it's not my problem. But we're all at risk. Vegans too. We're no better off because we're not the ones causing the damage. It's, it's everybody's affected equally. And that's, that just drives me bonkers. Yeah, totally. And uh, Benatar actually, there's something he, he says at the end that I really like. He's talking about self-interest as a pretty powerful motivator. And we tend to think of it as being a powerful motivator. That's why you often hear animal rights messaging couched in language about why it's also good for humans. So the link between domestic violence and animal abuse or uh, the, the problems caused to our health by eating animals. So it's a powerful motivator, but he says, and I quote, even self-interest is an imperfect motivator. For all the puffery in calling ourselves homo sapiens, the quote, wise human, we display remarkably little wisdom, even of a prudential kind. And I think that really hits the nail on the head. Uh, we've been caught flat-footed with this pandemic. We've been warned forever that the pandemic is coming. It's only a matter of time. This is just something that happens. And we were remarkably unprepared for it. I think in the same way, uh, antibiotic resistance is this looming problem that we've been told and warned about for, for years and for decades that we're also not ready for and we don't really have a contingency plan for. So you got to wonder, you know, how smart really is our species and uh, what will it take to get people to, to wake up and, and look at problems that are a little bit further down the road, like these issues and like things like climate change? Uh, absolutely. Like, uh, these are the big picture issues. And, and it, it's a really nice segue. I realize we have another story to talk about. But it's isn't it really a great segue into the main topic for today? Absolutely, absolutely. And so you, soon you guys will be hearing the interview with Dr. Kendra Coulter, who um, we had a great chat with, and we go over all kinds of issues uh, on this topic with. Yeah, re really incredible. Yeah. Okay. All right, our next story is uh, quite a lengthy one, so I'm not going to try to summarize everything in it, but it's an article by Effective Altruism, and it's a very well-researched uh, and detailed summary of how the coronavirus is affecting animals used for human consumption. So we'll post a link to it in the show notes. It's quite a long read, but it goes over various issues with different types of animals and different uh, industries in different countries around the world, and there's some interesting stuff that emerges. So... It tends to be highly regionalized, and a lot of the ways that this is impacting animals has to do with local supply and demand issues and supply chains. So in China and India, for instance, we're seeing a lot of culling of chickens who are being buried alive or abandoned to starve to death. Uh, this appears to be due to supply chain restrictions that are affecting the ability of farmers to get animal feed. 
Um, people think that probably 100 million young chickens in China have already died so far because of this, and that was uh, over a week ago from the time that we're recording this episode, so it could be much higher now. Another area that we're seeing uh, probably increased animal suffering is in transport conditions, Peter. So we've spoken lots about animal transport on this show and how it's one of the most stressful times of a farmed animal short life. But there appears to be less monitoring and enforcement, and possibly because of border closures and delays of getting animals past borders, they're on those trucks for longer and suffering for longer. But the but good news is, Camille, the good news is the one, the one sector that has not had any problems with these ups and downs, from what I'm reading, is the dairy industry in Canada. It's all good, right? Everything is just perfect. Sarcasm alert. Yeah, the dairy industry in Canada is actually dumping out mass quantities of milk. It's craziness. Yeah, getting super defensive about it. Uh, There's much more. Farmers are very mad on Twitter. Yeah, there's much more. I mean, one one other bright spot is that fishing and aquaculture appears to be uh, quite affected. And a reason for this, Peter, is that much of the seafood or sea animals, I don't like referring to them as food, the sea animals who we eat are cooked in restaurants. Uh, For instance, few people prepare lobsters or crabs at home or even fish to some extent. That tends to be more of a restaurant type of dish that people order. Uh, And so demand for sea animal consumption has gone way down. And apparently lobster fishers in Nova Scotia and Maine are considering suspending fishing activities altogether, which is great for the lobsters. Wow. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. Really good news. Um, You know, just one other interesting tidbit is because this is really highly regionalized. Interestingly, in India, there's a potential 25 to 30% decline in chicken sales, possibly due to rumors that chickens are linked to the coronavirus, which <laughs> <That's so laughs> you know, that may not be true, but I'll take it. You know what? If it's Camille, we're not above fake news here. If it needs to be done, it <laughs> needs to be done. God damn it. Chickens cause coronavirus. Don't eat them. Stop. Don't eat now. them. Yeah, I mean, economic retraction usually means a lower demand for red meat because it tends to be seen as more of a luxury product and it's more expensive. But often, Peter, what happens is that people start increasing the number of chickens they eat, which results in more animal suffering because chickens are smaller. So this is this is potentially not great for chickens if the economy retracts. Yeah, but thankfully, Camille, chickens cause coronavirus. So don't eat them. It's very bad. Don't eat them. <laughs> you guys don't eat them. And just one final thing is that plant-based meat sales are soaring. 279% increase in the U.S. in mid-March compared to this time last year, uh, and far less of an increase for other types of meat. Like, all food sales were up because of sort of runs on the grocery store, but plant-based meat is way up. So that kind of runs counter to all these, you know, I think fake news posts that dairy farmers have been posting on Twitter saying, oh, look, look at this big vegan section. It's all full. Nobody's taking it. Uh, clearly, the evidence doesn't actually bear that out. Yeah, but I liked it better when it did, Camille. I don't want to be going to the supermarket <laughs> and not be able to get my Beyond Burgers and stuff. So, like, Beyond Burgers cause coronavirus. No, I'm not going to go that way. <laughs> that's, that's pure selfishness. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we'll post a link to that article. It's quite lengthy, and there's some very interesting and well-researched info in there. So check it out if you're a data nerd. And now I think we're ready to move on to our main topic. We are, and I'm very excited. We've been meaning to do this for quite some time. This is not a uh, spur-of-the-moment thing at all. We have talked in the past about having uh, Dr. Kendra Coulter on. To be honest, 
We really blew it, Camille. This should have been two episodes. I'm not, you know, I understand our rationale for keeping it together, but there was just, it was so chock full of interesting things that we could have, we could have, we could have milked, milked this. There we go again. What's the expression? What's the what's the expression for that? We could have soy milked this. We could have soy milked this. Well, milk, as we know, Camille. I don't have to say soy milk. No, that's wrong. I'm not going there, Camille, because it is a non-generic descriptor of a product that is a white substance. That's what I'm going with. So we milked this in the soy milk sense. We could have, as long as we can, because it was great stuff, and I hope you're going to enjoy listening to it. Kisava creates delicious dishes that are inspired by classic world village foods that your grandma might make. History with a modern twist. Kisava's dishes are rich with bold flavors, authentic ingredients that happen to be naturally gluten-free. Kisava has something for everyone, including its own line of 100% plant-based foods that include cheddar-style potato pierogies, sweet potato ravioli, green pea, and potato samosas. Kisava's dough is made from the cassava root, which sustained indigenous peoples in Brazil and Peru for thousands of years. Kisava was inspired by a time when allergies and food sensitivities weren't abundant like they are now. Kisava's products are always natural with ingredients you can pronounce that are good for you and for the planet. Perfect for vegans, vegetarians, the health conscious, the planet lovers, and the celebrators of life. Kisava's products are made in Vancouver, B.C., Visit the store finder at kisava.com to find a retailer near you. That's Q-U-E-S-A-V-A dot com. For those of you who haven't heard of tempeh, you are missing out. Tempeh is a popular food item in Indonesia that's traditionally made with soy as a staple source of protein. It's versatile, filling, and has a delicious nutty flavor. The folks behind Tempe are masters of creating great tempeh, and they've developed a passionate following in Vancouver for many good reasons. Tempe's products are always fresh, made with organic, non-GMO soybeans. Its tempeh is unpasteurized, and that means it's alive and full of flavor. Tempeh is a superfood with numerous benefits. First, it's an awesome source of protein. And Tempe's tempeh actually has 1.4 times more protein than firm tofu. Tempeh is also low in saturated fat and free of trans fat, cholesterol, and sodium. It's high in fiber and is a source of calcium and iron. If you serve it plain, it's low in FODMAPs too. Tempeh is also naturally gluten-free. Visit tempeh.ca for delicious tempeh-packed recipes and to find out where you can find tempeh products in the greater Vancouver area. Okay, and for our main segment in this episode of Pawn Order, we have a very special interview with Dr. Kendra Coulter. Kendra holds the Chancellor's Chair for Research Excellence and is the Chair of the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. She's also a Fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics and a member of the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists. Dr. Coulter has studied animal cruelty investigations since 2015 and is leading a multi-year comparative research project on humane law enforcement work and policy, which is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. She's written widely on many facets of labor involving animals, including the book Animals, Work, and the Promise of Interspecies Solidarity, and is co-editor with Charlotte Blattner and Will Kimlicka of Animal Labor, A New Frontier of Interspecies Justice. Kendra, welcome to Fa and Order. Thank you. It's great to be here with you two fabulous people. And you know, what's kind of cool about this, Peter, is that this is the first time that we've ever done a joint interview of a podcast guest. It's always you interviewing or me interviewing, but never together. So it's kind of fun. It's my pl- Well, I guess. 
I kind of I kind of want the glory for myself, Camille. You've ruined everything. That is like the most Peter comment I've ever heard. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I can't help it, Camille. I'm feeling churlish today. No, this is great. I uh, I had to come in on this one. I was very excited to speak with Dr. Coulter. And uh, we're just, let's, can we call her Kendra from now on, Camille? Can we drop the doctor? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's do that. Let's get to... Uh, Let's get to uh, Kendra, because we're very excited to have And we have three sort of main areas we want to discuss with Kendra uh, related to some of her recent work. And and the first one relates to the work that she's done on animal law enforcement, which is a totally understudied area and and something that we as lawyers think about a lot, uh, how laws can be structured to achieve good or not so good outcomes. And in particular, not just the substance of the laws, but the structure of enforcement that allows people to make sure that those laws go heeded. And I think that until recently, it's fair to say that people have given comparatively little thought to how our animal cruelty law enforcement has been just a total dog's breakfast and heavily reliant on private funded and non-government actors. And uh, Kendra is one of the few academics who has started to research this area. And uh, given your recent work in Manitoba. We're going we're gonna to get into that. But I'm curious to know how you got interested in researching this topic in general, Kendra. That's a great question. I'm thinking back a few years. Conversations with my colleague, Dr. Amy Fitzgerald, who's a criminologist at the University of Windsor, about this highly atypical situation and why it is that essentially uh, crimes against animals are the only kind of crimes that have been offloaded in this way. So we were uh, perplexed and and concerned about the situation. Uh, At the time, the Ontario government had had just recently begun providing a very small amount of money, so just over $5 million to the OSPCA for enforcement. And we specifically wanted to find out what difference has that made and to use uh, that that study as a vehicle to begin to ask some of these bigger questions, which is, you know, what kind of organization and agency is best positioned to, to do that crucial enforcement work? Because I think we can all agree that the laws need to be more effective and smarter. But uh, any law is only as good as its enforcement, and that requires people on the front lines doing that work. So, you know, my interest as a labor scholar is in the the men and the especially especially the women. There are many number many women uh, doing this kind of work on, on their conditions and their roles. So it's it's really uh, you know launched and, and exploded since then and become a very timely and important issue. So you know we're very grateful to have been able to offer some valuable data, but also to be able to contribute to policymakers' deliberations because this is a really really important area, as you mentioned, understanding and in need of, of, of far greater political attention. Yeah, no, and I think it's super interesting, um, but also super important to have that research because, you know, Peter and I go on at length in this podcast about the problems with the way that the law is structured right now, the way that the enforcement systems are structured right now. And we theorize a lot about the impacts that this has on the lives of animals when the laws go unenforced and whether it's it's better to have private enforcement that might be more invested in it because the workers are personally compassionate and care a lot about the work. Um, or whether it might be the situation that the state-funded enforcement body, uh, like all the other areas of law that that we see enforced in this, in this country, could be a better situation. But, you know, in a sense, we're always just speculating. We don't really know because we don't really have any data or evidence. And evidence collection has been just severely lacking in this country, particularly by governments. So can you just talk a little bit about some of the steps that you've taken and, and the challenges that you've uh, face when trying to just gather the data in the first place. 
Well, we began with a detailed study of the OSPCA, so that required organizational cooperation, which we were very pleased to receive. And the officers were really keen to share their stories and share their experiences. They felt that it was one of the first times that someone on the outside had ever paid attention to them. From there, we began to to you know ask bigger questions. Uh, things started happening, as as you both know, and your listeners certainly know, in Ontario and around the country, with SPCAs asking their own questions. You know, undoubtedly, uh, their staff are very well intentioned and committed to animals. But as charities, these organizations are always going to have volatile resources. They're going to be dependent on the uh, you know ebbs and flows of fundraising and and. So some uh, were asking their own questions about safety, drawn in part from our report, but also from their own workers' concerns. Uh, So, uh, you know, your listeners are familiar with the trajectory in Ontario, undoubtedly, with the OSPCA beginning to withdraw its services and uh, and the court ruling. There's been, you know, a much longer history. uh, and, And so we began to look around the country. And to say, well, if, if, if we have concerns about this private enforcement model, this offloading to charities model where, you know, you don't have enough officers, they have huge caseloads, they're covering huge geographic regions, they don't have basic personal protection equipment, what else is working? And so we wanted to expand and look around the country and begin to look internationally at examples in the United States first. Uh, and then recently we've received funding that's going to allow us to expand internationally to, to look at a, a range of different approaches. I don't believe there's a one size fits all model. And I think that local particulars can matter. That said, in general, public agencies are going to be better positioned to provide stable funding. There are more tools and vehicles that can be used in the public sector to better protect workers uh, whose well-being is directly connected to the efficacy of their work. So so we're looking at different case studies. And I also think there's some things that can be learned from the less successful examples. We're seeking out stronger and, and, and more effective, more uh, more positive case studies, but from from everything we do, from what doesn't work, I think we can also glean important lessons. Can I ask um, what are, what are some of those lessons that you've learned already? Like, what have you learned in particular from some of the models that haven't worked? Do they have commonalities, for example? I think it's easier to talk about what. I think this, the, the lessons of, of what doesn't work and does work in some ways go together. So I might frame these slightly more in the positive, which key lessons that would cut across all sorts of jur- jurisdictions include the importance of facilitating and streamlining the reporting. So allowing people to easily and effectively report what they think is suspected animal cruelty. As long as we're going to be relying on a complaints-based model, which is the, the over overwhelming majority of uh, what's used in, in what's used in the overwhelming majority of cases you need to make it easy for members of the public to be able to call in a complaint so I think centralized animal care lines or animal welfare lines that are staffed by well-trained people are crucially important because that initial call is quite valuable and it gets the ball rolling you uh, in some provinces for example there are highly trained people staffing those animal uh, care lines because you're trying to get as much information as you can in advance to protect the people who are going and doing that initial inf- investigation jurisdictions that struggle tend to have fewer resources allocated to veterinary forensics so veterinary forensics and investment in it is emerging as is a crucial theme when you get the very serious cases that are very complex Sometimes it's animals who are the only victims. Often there are also human victims, children 
uh, and or women. And so there's a really important need to be enlisting experts for investigation of, of the crime scene, but also of animals' bodies. You know, a lot of animal advocates will say, you know, animals are voiceless. Uh, I would argue that animals have, have, have lots to say. We just need to listen to their modes of communication. And I'm not unique in arguing that. In the case of animal victims, it's often their bodies that are speaking for them, you know, and there's a really uh, dedicated veterinary forensic team in Colombia, of all places, who are working under very difficult circumstances, uh, you know, given the violence and, and the risks in, in, the, in that country of doing law enforcement work. Uh, and, and Dr. Julio Aguirre is the lead forensic veterinarian, and he always says, let the body speak because animal victims, their bodies have a lot to tell us. It's often very disturbing, very traumatic to learn what their bodies have to say, but jurisdictions that are um, downplaying the importance of veterinary forensics uh, are gonna be having less effective enforcement. Finally, I would say we always get back to numbers. You need a sufficient number of people doing this work. They need to be respected. There need to be supports for their mental health because you are walking into some deeply disturbing and gruesome situations that uh, are going to have long-term and serious effects on people's well-being and psychological health. So, uh, you know, this is an instance where, you know, the public gets very outraged about animal cruelty cases that make it into the media. What we want is for them to understand the corresponding need to invest in the people that do that work. They need There need to be enough of them. They need to be properly trained. They need to be supported. I would argue they should be working in partners for safety uh, reasons. Uh, and, and the investments in them are going to lead to better protections for animals and, of course, for, for vulnerable people as well. Well, that's one thing I really like about your approach and your work, Kendra, is that you're not only focused on the outcomes for animals, but also the conditions that the workers endure and how those two concepts uh, relate to each other and the idea that what's better for workers and better pay, more of them, uh, stronger respect for the people doing these jobs is, is, is important for the outcomes that, that animals face, too. And it's always been really dismaying to me to hear people refer to animal protection or cruelty officers as dog catchers. They're basically glorified dog catchers in the eyes of some members of the public. And I think that's a direct consequence of the, the underfunding and the fact that it tends to be a charitable model carrying out this work. Um, just want to add that I also really appreciate your comments about the ease of reporting these cases, because one thing that we experience at Animal Justice so often is people emailing and phoning us and saying, I just saw this, or I heard about the situation in my neighborhood, it's really upsetting, there's a dog who's being abused, a horse who's too thin, who do I report it to? And they don't come to us first, they come to us second or third, because they've tried many different avenues, and they just have so much trouble navigating all these different agencies. Uh, when you think about the fact that in, in some jurisdictions, you could have the R RCMP, the CFIA, a local SPCA, a Humane Society in another district, potentially the local police, municipal officials. There's just so many people for uh, uh, so many avenues that people could potentially take. And only one of those is usually the right one. And they tend to get very frustrated when they can't figure that out. So I, I think that's important, too. Um, so just moving into your recent research in Manitoba, because you have published a, a paper along with a colleague that's uh, very interesting and an empirical look at Manitoba's approach. And it's uh, somewhat unique among jurisdictions in Canada. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your research revealed. When we were looking across the country, Manitoba was often singled out as the, the public enforcement example in addition to Newfoundland and Labrador, which has police um, doing this work. But Manitoba was, uh, has uh, 
an, an animal protection team. And so we wanted to dig into that, obviously, and see, you know, what's working, what, what isn't working. And the results were quite interesting. So it is publicly funded. And, you know, I applaud the Manitoba government. It was under uh, Gary Dewar's NDP government when, when this was created for recognizing the ethical and public safety importance of allocating public money to protecting animals. In terms of delivery, it becomes a little more complicated. There are different kinds of animal protection officers. Some, uh, just under half, work directly for the government. So our public employees, they're unionized, they have fairly good workplace protections. The majority of animal protection officers in Manitoba are actually external workers contracted to do this work. They're paid by the public sector, but they work either for the Winnipeg Humane Society within the boundaries of that city, and for the rest of the province, they're actually independent contractors. So for your listeners who are not uh, you know, labor law experts, independent contractors are not legally defined as workers. They're legally defined as businesses. So if Peter was a citizen of small community in northern Manitoba and wanted to be appointed as an animal protection officer, uh, he could be. And then the Peter Sankoff Animal Protection Inc., <laughs> contracting business would be responsible for doing that work. What those independent contractors have in terms of workplace protection is a, is a complete mix. Um, they're not legally defined as workers. So they uh, are supplying their own vehicles. If they have a uniform, it's their own choosing. They're having to log miles, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but perhaps most troublingly, they can say no to a call. So Manitoba has a centralized animal care line. There's one number you call if you suspect animal cruelty and a number of the people answering those calls are themselves appointed as animal protection officers. So they have some training. There's only about eight hours of training for animal protection officers in Manitoba overall. So we would want to see more training than that. But they at least have the minimum set by the province. They're trying to gather as much as they can from, from the person. But someone is still going to need to go and do that investigation. And... In the case of Manitoba, all of those independent contractors are what are called external uh, animal protection officers because they don't work directly for the government, have other jobs. So they can say no, they simply don't have time, etc. I think we want to be doing better and aiming a little bit higher. We would like to see Manitoba now follow the model that Ontario has uh, laudably chosen, which is having a dedicated public provincial animal protection force which would eliminate all of those occupational inequities and have one well-trained, properly uh, resourced team of enforcement officers for the entire province of Manitoba. Let's move away from independent contractors and have people dedicated to animal protection. So, um, Kendra, when you and I met in Edmonton, we had a quick discussion along these lines, and um, I repeated one of my favorite lines, um, which was that in New Zealand, they used to talk about all the different agencies that are available for this kind of work. Like, you know, it's a coordinated response, and there's like six different agencies. I guess following up on what you just said, I'm curious about whether your research has revealed anything about some of the tensions that exist when different forces are tasked with dealing with different aspects of animal welfare 
uh, questions. So, for example, by species, so the farm animal, domestic animal split. And how, how do those things function based on what you've been able to observe? Animal protection legislation, at least in Canada, tends to set that minimum standard that would apply to all different species. So I know you talk a lot about how we don't have any species-specific regulations in Canada. So, for example, things for chickens, things for cows, uh, etc., the way that, that certain European countries do and that ours are voluntary. So the only protections available for farm animals are those minimum standards established for all animals. So, you know, yes, it's illegal to beat a chicken with a pole, but it's not illegal to burn their beaks off, for example, even though both of those things would cause pain to, to the chickens. We have tended to focus on companion animals overall in terms of the enforcement, and that's again in large part because of a number of cultural factors, but also because of the complaint space model that people are more often seeing the animals who might share people's homes. Uh, I think those are important questions, which is, do there, does there need to be different areas of expertise? And I think you could make a strong case that there should be dedicated provincial units and then species-specific experts within that, that all of them have more than eight hours of training, a good amount of training and education about the specifics of animals, the specifics of provincial law enforcement, the human-animal violence link connections, because they are often seeing uh, violence against women and children simultaneously, but then that you could have dedicated experts under that larger umbrella. So let's say in the case of, say, Ontario, they're talking about having around 100 officers. I don't believe that's enough. That is an absolute minimum and would really want to see us increasing beyond that. So those 100 folks could have the minimum level of training. And then let's say you have 10 experts on uh, farmed animals, uh, 10 experts on horses and other equids, etc. That it's quite possible to thoughtfully approach a public model that recognizes commonality as well as differences in order to best meet the needs of all of our animals. Because, um, you know, wild animals, farmed animals, companion animals, captive animals, they all deserve protection. Yeah, and the the amount of funding and the number of officers that you you brought up a moment ago that's really interesting to me as well because obviously the the, the degree to which officers can cover a province uh, has bearing on the degree to which animals can be protected and the laws can be enforced. And I know um, I don't have the figure in front of me, but the population of Ontario is about ten times that of Manitoba. And uh, do you know how many officers or full time equivalent officers are in Manitoba? Manitoba has about 105 people appointed as animal protection officers. Now, they're not all working full time, uh, as some may be doing office work or different other sorts of things within the chief veterinary office as well. But that is indeed the same number that Ontario has proposed. Manitoba has 10% the population of Ontario. So, you know, you could make a really logical argument that Ontario's force should be at least 10 times the size of Manitobas. Yeah, no, at least. Uh, interesting, too. I, I always love the stat, and I think you came up with it, that uh, previously the OSPCA, when they were doing the enforcement, there were more TTC fair inspectors than OSPCA officers for the entire province. 
it's qu- it's quite remarkable, uh, among other words, isn't it? <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, um, just maybe one final thing from your Manitoba research before we move on to talk about some other topics is uh, is you looked at some of the reporting in, in terms of outcomes of calls from the public uh, about animal cruelty cases. And uh, found some serious discrepancies there in the way that statistics are being reported between the the chief veterinary office, which is the public body that houses some APOs, animal protection officers, and groups like the Winnipeg Humane Society, which employs some of the other ones. Um, how were you able to sort of make sense of, of this data? And, and do you have any recommendations for how provinces and organizations should be collecting and reporting it in the future? There's such a dearth of data on animal cruelty statistics. Uh, when you want to get numbers, you folks know this very it's very challenging. And there's a real need for evidence-based policymaking. I think we can all agree on that. And in order to have evidence-based policymaking, you need that data. So I would like to see Statistics Canada taking animal crimes seriously uh, for for the country overall. I think there should be centralized provincial reporting uh, across each Canadian province in addition to that. That was a challenge with the Manitoba case, which is that the Winnipeg Humane Society and the Chief Veterinary Office, which is the government agency that oversees all of this, are keeping track, but in very different ways. So within provinces, it would be useful to have consolidated reporting, and uh, across the country, that would be useful. That said, I do think we have a bigger challenge, which is how do you measure efficacy of animal protection work? Because I wouldn't suggest that only charges and prosecutions are the way that you deem what you've done successful. I think prevention is critically important. I think it's a success if you've identified a challenge, someone struggling, someone who doesn't understand what needs to happen, someone who lacks resources, and you've been able to get them the assistance that they need. That, to me, is a success. Very difficult to measure those sorts of things. So that's what's interesting to me about New York's model. So New York has a partnership-based model where frontline investigations are the responsibility of the NYPD. So it's going to be a New York police officer who investigates all suspected animal cruelty in, this, in, in New York. They may pursue the legal avenues available to them, but in many cases what they're finding is something's not quite right, but the legal route is not necessarily the most uh, advisable strategy or the criminal justice system approach. So that's where the ASPCA comes in. And I think part of this is a larger discussion about what is the role of animal welfare charities in our society. And I think there are a lot of different things that they are doing and could be doing to support animals' well-being in a false sense. And so sometimes that's responsive, but there's also crucial work to be done in terms of prevention and proactive work and encouraging animal well-being, providing services to people who simply can't afford them. Uh, so the ASPCA has what I would call field teams. Uh, so if there, if there is an NYPD officer who investigates a case and they're like, eh, this doesn't warrant a charge, they can then move that over to the ASPCA. The ASPCA will send out field workers that might involve veterinarians, social workers, different kinds of people with different skill sets who say, you know, let's have a conversation. What's the challenge here? Uh, and that's a, you know, a very well-resourced organization with a lot of resources that is able to provide people with, say, the enclosure the turtle needs or that stopgap dog food uh, while, you know, while you try to get a new job, etc. So I think there are fruitful opportunities for collaboration and for support, uh, and and that 
these are should be collaborative, uh, respectful conversations occurring within jurisdictions, occurring, occurring, occurring at the national level uh, about how can we all best work together? Um, because it's not always going to be the charges that measure success. It's going to be, do we have happy human-animal relationships, animals doing better than they were? Those, to me, are also really important successes. I think those are extremely important metrics. And the issue also go back, goes back to uh, over-policing of certain communities and the way that laws have often been used to marginalize people who are less resourced, more impoverished. And uh, that goes back to a question of state resources, too. And to what extent is the government prepared to step in there and assist people in taking care of their, their animals when the, the issue is not an intent to harm those animals, but just lack of resources for appropriate veterinary care, appropriate food, and so on. I think the situation is probably different for industrial uses of animals. I would say that the, 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 the paradigm needs to be uh, much harsher when people are profiting from using animals. But I think for community use of animals and people with companion animals, that's, that's really important. Um, okay, so thanks for that interesting discussion. We we also are really keen to talk about a recent opinion piece that you published in the Globe and Mail. Peter, do you want to um, start on that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I cannot say that I have been, you know, into the Tigers as much as the rest of the world um, in the sense of watching this series. I did watch the first one, and then. We talked about it on our last podcast, Camille, and Camille was speaking about the show, and I hadn't watched it yet, so it all just sort of blurred over me. But then I went back and listened to the podcast, and like she spoiled the entire thing for me, because now I'm like terrified that something bad is going to happen to... It's Carol, right? I can't remember Carol her name. Baskin. Carol Baskin. Yes. What's her name? Carol's Carol's husband. Like, something bad is going to happen. I don't know what it is. But anyway, um, we'll leave the intricacies of the, of the uh, show show uh for now i wanted to talk more about um obviously tigers because i watched this show and i don't know how any animal advocate cannot watch this show and just be blown away even though we knew i know camille knows we all know but you see the extent and the justifications that are given and the real lack of enforcement and policing in this area um and by the way just as an aside kendra i want to ask you about the tigers themselves but i mean talk about when you talk about investigation and enforcement if you ever went to investigate one of those tiger farms you better bring the military with you like there's a lot of weaponry on those farms but in any way kendra we'd like to hear more about like your perspective Perspective and your thoughts um, about watching this uh, um, this Netflix show on tigers. I think what stood out to a lot of us is that even when the camera's right on the animals, they're not actually being considered. It's the drama of the humans that's that's made at the center. And I think there's some tragic human stories in there too. We see a lot of addictions and mental health issues, people in poverty, people desperate for a job, uh, people with disabilities. But to 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 you know, focus on the paw and order focus, uh, it's it's troubling, and it, I think the one positive outcome of that show for this country is that it's inspiring people to ask important questions about how many exotic animals we have here and the state of their lives. And of course, we have we have many, uh, and they're often quietly suffering in in private hands. It was research commissioned by. World Animal Protection Canada just this past fall that has estimated that there are about a million and a half privately owned exotic animals in Canada. Nearly 4,000 of those are big cats. 
But then we have all sorts of other animals, uh, you know, crocodiles, alligators, monkeys, birds, these poor, poor sugar gliders. I want to raise the plight of the sugar gliders, these little adorable marsupials from Australia who, because of their cuteness, are highly desirable as pets, even though they're social beings who belong in the wild. In Australia, uh, they're, they're permitted. So we, of course, have a bit of an unusual legal tapestry. Yes, there are international treaties prohibiting trade in endangered species, but from what I understand, a lot of the tigers in private hands across Canada are hybrids, therefore not protected by international treaties. And even if they are, it seems to me that the protection by international treaties is really with respect to import. It doesn't deal with the animals once they're on the ground. As we saw, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a random example. Totally random, never discussed no, it's discussed all the time on this show. Let's say we were to talk about, I don't know, say a monkey that one day went into Ikea that, you know, you can't import into Canada. It's all illegally transferred. But once it gets into mm-hmm. really one of my favorite people's hands, I think she's been a zero three or four times. Is that right? Camille? Yasmin Nakuda, like the Ikea monkey oh, yeah, former she's just, captor. She's just a permanent permanent zero but once it's there it's there right and then that doesn't deal with the presence of the animal yeah absolutely yeah and this takes us back to i I mean i think one thing that struck me while watching tiger king um sure the human drama is entertaining and i totally agree with kendra that the, the the amount of attention paid to the plight of the animals and their suffering was was minimal uh to nil in most of the episodes it was pretty shocking but i think it's easy for canadians to feel smug watching it and thinking oh my god those americans in the southern united states oh they've got problems but that kind of thing would never happen up here and that's why i'm glad that you you wrote this piece in the globe uh, kendra uh, about the fact that uh, it is happening here. You know, I can tell you there's all kinds of dime store tiger kings across this country. Animal Justice did an undercover investigation into uh, Papanak Zoo outside of Ottawa a couple years ago. That's a roadside zoo in Ontario where they do many of exact same things that Joe Exotic does in the States. They have large cats. They have baby um, small cats who they use in both film production. They use them for selfies with people who come and pay to hold the cats for a minute. They exploit animals in exactly the same way. And Ontario, as the biggest province, doesn't even regulate exotic animal use yet. Uh, There's signals that that's coming thanks to the new Paws Act that the government passed late last year. So I'm hoping that that will be the case. But I just think it's important to remind Canadians that, um, if anything, the laws are are probably worse here because there's no federal oversight of uh, zoos and exhibitors of animals the way there is in the States. Absolutely. And it prompts us to, again, want to consider how we define cruelty because there's a lot of cruelty that's perfectly legal. Overt manifestations of harm are easy to identify, but ripping babies from their mothers the day they're born is cruel, regardless of what species it's done to. It's done to more than a few species, uh, kinds of animals in this country. And it was devastating to watch in the Tiger King that happening uh, to to the tiger cubs. And as you mentioned, there are those sorts of uh, organizations and um, amusement quote-unquote, parks traveling around or, or in, in small communities here. Uh, there, there's a lot of work to do to, to regulate this, and I do hope that will be one positive outcome. Uh, you know, it is, it is rather shameful in Ontario that it's only illegal to own two kinds of animals, orcas and pit bulls. I think we would consider one of those animals perfectly acceptable to have in your home. And 
the other undoubtedly belonging in the wild. But of course, let's take this moment to recognize the work of Dr. Laurie Marino and, and other uh, whale advocates who have secured a, a sanctuary uh, on, the, on the East Coast uh, for formerly uh, employed as entertainment uh, orcas uh, and, and other marine mammals. So that's a positive step. And I think that's really key. Where you know, We have all of these disturbing examples that we need to confront head on and recognize how animals are being treated close to home and across our country, but also how this is directly connected to the coronavirus pandemic in which we are trapped, uh, which is that this desire we have to own and to, to control animals, to consume them, to touch them, to seem different or special or powerful or to gain status by being near them. This is, this is the core flaw and, and we need to confront this. It's, it's, it's for the, the good of the animals, undoubtedly, but it's also for our own good. Well, that's one thing I loved about your piece, too, and, and the headline. And of course, we'll share this in the show notes so everyone can check this out. But you say Tiger King isn't a coronavirus distraction. It's a mirror into our blatant dis- disrespect for animals. And you go on to detail how scientific research suggests that consuming animals is the origin of this pandemic, as, as I think we've talked a lot about on this podcast. But also other outbreaks, swine flu, bird flu, mad cow disease. Um, you look at HIV, that likely came from um, primates. Uh, you, lo- you look at pretty much any virus or pandemic, and then, you know, we're not even getting into antibiotic resistance, which is uh, a potential huge risk coming from factory farms. So I'm just uh, really happy to see this pointed out in the opinion pages of the Globe and Mail. So thanks for writing that, Kendra. It's my pleasure. It's certainly our responsibility to be to be raising these issues as as you two do so often through this podcast. <laughs> well, so we want to move on now to some of your other recent work, and I understand that uh, you know back on this, this issue of uh, exotic animal ownership, of course. We were just mentioning, and we've talked a lot on this podcast, about how in Ontario there's basically no laws governing exotic animal ownership, which is highly problematic. And instead of regulating, the province has to date been content to download that responsibility to municipalities who, for a variety of reasons, are just not well-placed to implement or oversee those laws. So I know you've been looking into some of these laws in the province's municipalities, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your findings. Yes, in 2001, the Ontario government downloaded responsibility for uh, animal-making laws, including anything that might restrict or prohibit the ownership or display of exotic animals to municipalities. There are 444 municipalities in Ontario, ranging in size from you know the city of Toronto to tiny townships. It's quite a mix when you look at uh, all of these different governing bodies that have different resources, different budgets, different goals in terms of their governance. We undertook the painstaking work of combing through all 444 municipalities' bylaws. What we found was troubling. It may not be shocking to you or to your viewers, but I think the numbers are are very powerful, uh, which is that a full half of Ontario municipalities have no laws whatsoever governing the presence of exotic animals. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised that it wasn't fewer, (laughs) in a sense, Uh, just because it's a really overwhelming task as a municipality to comb through all the thousands of different exotic animal species that people want to keep as pets and decide as a municipality which one of those you want to allow into your boundaries. 
Um, you know, the fact that we've forced municipalities into this position for so long is just so completely unacceptable. But but we we're I think that's a bit of an exaggeration anyway about the scope of the problem, Camille. Because it seems to me it's not like someone's just going to move if the municipality bans their animal, is it? Like who would do that? Who would just move over? The municipal line. I can't think of anyone <laughs> who would go to that length. Are we back, dude? I can't stop it, man. It's the Yasmin Nakuda hour. I just, I can't help. Whenever I talk exotic animals, I think of my favorite exotic animal. Well, and just for listeners who don't follow, um, you know, every single time Peter makes this mention, <laughs> Yasmin Nakuda did own the IKEA monkey Darwin, who now lives at a sanctuary and is in a much better situation. Uh, but after he was seized from her because she let him run loose in an IKEA parking lot, she moved to the Kawartha Lakes region, which uh, she carefully selected because it had no exotic animal restrictions. Um, I think that they, I don't know, actually, maybe Kendra, you know, if they've since brought some in, but I know that she has since obtained a lot of monkeys and a lot of other animals and has uh, quite a a significant private menagerie now. So that's the problem with this race to the bottom and the fact that we don't have consistent provincial laws. Absolutely. And... About one-third of Ontario municipalities have opted to use fairly similar language, banning ownership of many families. So, for example, all non-human primates is a, is a good umbrella that catches you know, all sorts of, of, of monkeys and apes um, there under. But at the same time, they've added exemptions. And in, these exemptions are not only for animal rehabilitation organizations or, uh, you know, public animal protection agencies, but often for circuses, fairs, and even mobile zoos. So precisely the kinds of traveling animal exhibits that you see in the Tiger King, you see Joe Exotic going into the malls with his cubs uh, in those municipalities, uh, the one-third of Ontario municipalities that have taken the positive step of banning many different families of animals have simultaneously said these sorts of traveling exhibits are acceptable. So I think we would want to raise some questions about that. Yeah, hugely problematic if you're not even reaching all those individuals who should be policed in this way. And I've noticed a trend too, and we've we've started working on our report about this, and I'm probably writing a broader paper about uh, some of these issues too, but uh, the fact that often a facility that's accredited by the Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, which is a private industry-run body designed to promote the interests of the zoo and aquarium industry, they'll often exempt those facilities in particular. And so they're essentially handing oversight of those facilities off to this private body that's not accountable to the public, not transparent at all, and we have no way to oversee. And enforcement is a critical question. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about handing this off or, you know, pardon the bad pun, the Ontario government washing its hands <laughs> of responsibility for exotic animal protection. If you look at bylaw enforcement in these 444 municipalities, it's actually often offloaded to private organizations that might be nonprofits, to private businesses that might be kennels, and in many cases to people, to an individual person who is responsible for bylaw enforcement in X municipality. And the training or protections that those people have are gonna range significantly. So for an issue that's this significant, that has such social and health effects, um, that has you know, really noteworthy impact on animals' well-being, I think we want the best trained people in charge of 
investigating and enforcing and ensuring protection of these animals. So again, I think in the case of Ontario, this new animal protection team would be far better suited to investigating and promoting the well-being of any exotic animals that might be here uh, as part of a longer, larger conversation about, you know, why is it this province has no overarching legislation? The animals of Ontario and the people of Ontario deserve uniform protections because, you know, a sad, uh, a sad effect of, of this high, I mean, there are 700,000 privately owned animals in Ontario uh, and, uh, you know, those animals are often are often suffering. We can't replicate animals, natural habitats or social groups in homes, no matter how well intentioned we are. And, uh, you know, when people find that they can't cope or they lose interest, often what they do is they let the animals out into our natural environments. We have a huge problem with certain kinds of turtles um, being released into our natural environments. That's dangerous for those animals. It also poses really significant risks for our, our, our natural, uh, our native species and our, and our natural environments. Um, yeah, absolutely. And these are great points. And I just, just to put the uh, scope of the problem, you've given some numbers, but I, I, I like sometimes I think it's useful to put the scope of the problem into consideration. I used to do a slide in my animal law class that counted how many animal welfare inspectors there were for farm animals, and then how many farm animals there were. And then I just did some simple division to show how impossible it was to actually monitor animals individual welfare. And I used to make a joke at the end, like what if somebody goes on vacation, then the other people pokes up then, then each individual inspector picks up another 17 million animals. Um, but I mean, I, I think the scope is interesting. You mentioned 700,000 exotic animals. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me we could take everybody who's currently involved in any facet of animal welfare investigation in Ontario and turn them loose just on the exotic animal problem, and we would still barely be scratching the surface. They'd be investigating every day of the year, and we'd be barely in, uh, scratching the surface, it seems to me, of what kind of harms are being committed against these animals each day. Absolutely. And, and it, it raises the question of proactive inspections and their role in animal protection, regardless of the kind of animal you're talking about. I would argue that we, in addition to a complaints-based model, we should be having unannounced inspections of a range of different organizations where animals are held and kept. Um, this is uh, a variation on this is done in Sweden, where the animal protection officers are regularly going out proactively to ensure compliance and make suggestions and recommendations uh, and take responsive actions when need be. Uh, if, if you are simply relying on people to uncover examples of animal abuse, you're going to miss so much. And if you're always uh, re revealing when you're going to be showing up, uh, the unscrupulous will tidy and clean and hide and do what they need to do to to pass their inspection. So uh, unannounced inspections. I mean, seriously, now you're at the far end of the lunatic fringe here, Kendra. <laughs> unannounced inspections. Let me put this to you as bluntly as I can. Animal owners, especially those, you know, farm owners, et cetera, they have the best interests of their animals at heart. <laughs> I have seen the dairy farmers tweet feed and I saw a cow getting a nice brush on its cheek. So I know that all is good. Unannounced inspections. That's crazy talk. <laughs> well, and you mean on her cheek, not its cheek, of course, because she is someone and not something. Oh. <laughs> you know, you can go swim with the fishes with Camille. <laughs> you can all get together with the fishes and the fish and the her and the its. I'm getting the crazy thing is. Can I just tell you, the crazy thing is, 
in my other line of work, I'm getting hammered for gendered language. So I'm trying to go as neutral as possible, right? With it's and they's because like, I I really, I, it's it's a really, it's a minefield out there. So I'm like now, and on my animal podcast, I'm, you know, I'm doing the opposite wrong thing. It's good to know. I can get it wrong. You, can, you can always get it wrong. And I got to say, Kendra, I've enjoyed having a bit of an ally today against Peter. It's, it's been fun for me. <laughs> so I think, I think we we'll- joke. But this is, of course, uh, it is a serious issue, and we we all share this fundamental commitment to to doing better, to recognizing that animals are part of our families and our communities, uh, and that we should be allocating public money, not only to subsidizing large industries where animals are housed, uh, or perhaps instead of, but to their protection. And and I think that that this this moment is very difficult. It's very scary. You know, I worry a lot about people in homes with, uh, in abusive uh, people and animals in abusive homes um, right now. And 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 what this uh, pandemic is going to mean for animal protection that does exist, which was inadequate at the best of times. But now that we're in this constrained condition, uh, you know, what's going to be happening to all the different animals. But at the same time, there's this sort of unusual opportunity for us to be seeing so clearly the many effects of how we treat animals and that these have you know, very real, significant and awful fatal impacts, not only for other animals, but for ourselves. And, and so I hope we can be having these important conversations and that they don't just remain conversations, but that they lead to action in our own lives and even more significantly at the political level, because these are deeply personal and, and are going to involve people making personal changes. But at the core, these are political and economic problems, and we want to be investing in protection. We want to be moving away from harmful industries and practices towards more positive, sustainable, ethical kinds of humane jobs and humane industries that 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 do uh, do right by animals and that provide animals the protections uh, or the or the freedoms that they deserve, but that also respect people because. It has never been more clear that we are all connected and that we need to be taking these issues far more seriously. Well, I'm glad you went there in terms of the political realm, because that's my hobby horse. And I planned to uh, thank you for joining us today, but also wrap up by reminding people that if you've heard something today that makes you think, oh, what? (laughs) That makes you think. It's important not to just think about that issue, but to contact your representative and tell them your concerns about the pandemic, about the fact that it was caused by animals. If you're in Ontario, you can let them know that you want to see strong exotic animal regulation, uh, oversight over zoos, aquariums, all those facilities, and everything else we've discussed here. If you live somewhere else, ask uh, governments to devote more resources to protecting animals generally, and enforcement in particular, perhaps. There's all kinds of ways to get involved in this, and it's important not just to let this moment pass because we do have an opportunity here in the face of this crisis to get some real change accomplished that will help humans, it will help animals. So Kendra, thank you so much for joining this. It was a really enlightening conversation. It is my pleasure. And I want to thank both of you for everything that you do on behalf of animals, uh, 365 days a year. Same to you. 364, I take at least one day off. Camille is every day that goes without saying. Work-life balance is critically important. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Okay, thanks, Kendra. Bye. Heroes and Zeros. All right, everybody, it's time for your favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. It's Heroes and Zeros, and keeping with our theme, Camille, 
In fact, we should rename this segment, to be honest, because keeping with our theme of ending all COVID-related shows on a positive note, it's really welcome to Zeros and Heroes. I don't think that has the same ring. I feel like our listeners are mature enough to handle some bad news. Zeros and heroes. <laughs> I'm going with that. <laughs> we'll re-record that guy. Um, well, look, we don't have to change it. We can call it heroes and zeros. We, we, but I still, I like to lead with the zero. I want to finish on something positive. All right, fine. All right, I'll take the zero. Humor me, okay, Camille. So- Humor me. The Zero is the New Munster Zoo in Germany, which is uh, a zoo that is saying, apparently, in a German news site, the director is quoted as as saying that they're considering uh, feeding some animals to other animals in the zoo. They've listed the animals that they're going to have to slaughter first. And the reason that they're doing this, of course, is because zoo revenues are down due to COVID and they just don't feel like they can afford to feed these animals anymore. So I wanted to talk about this, not because this is something new. We've known forever that zoos do this. Uh, There was the zoo in Denmark, which butchered a, a giraffe, a juvenile giraffe named Marius and fed him to other zoo animals. This is not a novel thing, but I think it's really revealing of how zoos see animals. They don't actually care about their well-being. They see them as commodities who are earning income or generating loss. And at the moment, they're generating loss because nobody's coming to see them. So I think it's important to point this out and remind people that this is how zoos see animals. I don't think this is unique to the zoo industry. I expect we'll see this potentially in rodeos, which are shutting down. I've already heard whispers of uh, dog culls out in uh, the Western area where people use uh, dogs for dog sledding operations. Uh, we know that already happened in, in Whistler in 2010 after the Olympics when people stopped going to dog sledding operations. There was a huge drop in tourism and uh, one operator shot a bunch of dogs in the head in front of each other and that was the subject of probably the biggest uh, animal cruelty case in Canadian history. So this isn't something new, but I think it's something we all need to be mindful of. And I want to put it out there that if you live in an area where you're aware that this might happen to a zoo, a dog sledding operation, or something else, email us and let us know because we would like to know about this, we would like to expose this, and like to remind the public that when animals are seen as commodities that exist to earn income, their welfare will never be the top priority. You know, that dog sledding story, that's an interesting story, Camille. If only someone could like get off their ass and write a book about that. You know what I mean? Or at least a chapter of a book about that. Jesus, just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If only, if only. Um, but I did want to add to that, that, um, I'm a little surprised to hear you say all this because every time I hear from someone in the zoo industry, I hear, A, we love our animals. No one loves animals more. B, it's about conservation. Zoos are about conservation. So I feel like I'm getting mixed messages, Camille. There's just like something inherently wrong in this discussion. What could it be? Oh, I don't know. Could it be that zoos are extremely deceitful and just trying to get people to visit them based not on the truth, but on misinformation? I I don't know about that. I saw, I've recently seen, like, I I don't know if it's a zoo, a zoo safari park down in South Carolina, Camille. Those tigers look pretty happy. They are happy looking tigers. So I don't, are we segueing back to our main topic today? (laughs) <laughs> All right, let's uh, move on because for every zero, there's a hero. And in this case, 
We want to toss a little bit of goodwill the way of China. China has been getting some flack for a lot of reasons. Um, many of them, I might add, quite justifiable given the, oh, the yeah. fact. Yeah, I mean, and I don't. This is not about the virus per se, and like Trump blaming. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, justifiable because it's their wet markets that they continue to allow to happen that are the primary source of all this uh, mania that we are involved in. But we want to throw. Them um, a little bit, a little bit. This is really a, a is this a light hero, Camille? It's like I feel like it's like yeah, hero, light, light hero, a light hero because of they seem to be moving. And when China moves, that's kind of a big deal because it's a massive country with a massive population. They seem to be moving at least on the issue of dogs and cats uh, being considered as a food source for for many Chinese people. That's right. So there's a number of reports that the city of Shenzhen, which is one of China's largest cities, has banned the eating of cats and dogs in the wake of the pandemic, uh, which is quite novel and, and something that should be applauded. Um, obviously, cats and dogs are no different from any other animal, and there's um, you know a limited degree of credit, and I think that's why we use the term light hero that they should get for this move. But it's a good thing. And uh, China as a country is also looking at regulatory changes as well. They've issued a proposed whitelist of permitted livestock, and that excludes dogs and cats at the moment. So it looks like this could be something they're moving toward on a national level as well. Absolutely. And that's, look, that's good news. Um, you know, it, 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 you have to start somewhere with China. There's no question about that. And definitely getting this, this issue off the agenda and, and hopefully permanently would be a great thing. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, that is uh, another show uh, in isolation. Now, I, I should add, let me just throw a little tidbit out there. I, 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 you know, let's ask our listeners, Camille. Camille hates when I surprise her with stuff like this. She absolutely hates it. So I'm going to do it. That's why I'm going to do it, mainly because she hates it. So let me oh, just say <laughs> anything I can do, anything I can do to help you. Um, so. Let me just say this. Um, we were talking, you may not know this. In fact, you probably don't know this because I don't think it's apparent from the interview. But when we did our interview with uh, Professor Coulter, we were on Zoom so we could see each other. And Zoom has a handy dandy record function. So I suggested to Camille that we might like to make parts of this podcast recorded, if not the whole thing, parts of it, and put it up online. And Camille responded. How did you respond, Camille? <laughs> I think I said I don't want to have to put on makeup during quarantine, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I this this was I just want everybody to know this was the main point of bringing this up. <laughs> like it's just like I want you to understand that I am trying to give something back to the community and for Camille it's makeup. That's the problem. All right. Well, I you know, I feel like you may have overestimated our viewers' app or our listeners' appetites for becoming viewers. They I might think be viewers. Pretty they happy might be viewers. Their, their iPods or their iPhones. Well, I know on this one that my our producer Shannon Milling, who is listening to this, I think she sides with me, Camille. So I think that's two against one. I think you're outvoted. And I'll tell you what: if you wear makeup for it, I'll put some on too. <laughs> 
Okay, and we will, <laughs> we will, we will both look fresh and lovely for appearance. Anyway, listeners, if you're interested in that, sh- send an email to our producer Shannon Milling. I'm dead serious. Just dash her an email saying I'd like to watch some of this online. If we don't get any emails, Camille, you're off the hook. How's that for a deal? Shannon at AnimalJustice.ca. All right, we'll see. Have a great week, Camille. Talk to you in a couple. Talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!